0: Hello, everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon, the podcast that dives into music, filming, and games, and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is writer and producer CJ Wally, who wrote his first feature length film Break Even, starring Tasha Tellers, Steve Gutenberg, and James Callis. The film tells the story of four thrill seeking friends that find $50 million in cash on a remote island only to discover it was left by the DEA for a ruthless cartel and a rogue deal gone wrong. We jumped into CJ's experience of how his mental health breakdown in 2012 led him to follow his lifelong passion for screenwriting, why he started the free screenplay-sharing website Script Revolution, and what's it like working and collaborating with Hollywood director Shane Stanley on break-even and double-threat. And if you love this episode, leave a small tip in my Bitcoin jar, as it really helps the podcast. You can find the address to my Bitcoin wallet in the show notes below. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with CJ. So hello CJ, welcome to the podcast. So for people who aren't familiar with your work
1: as a screenwriter
0: and producer, who are you and what do you do?
1: Hey, Tom, thanks for having me on. Yes, I'm CJ Wally. I'm a writer-producer based in Staffordshire, UK, and I make feature films now that are based in the US. Um, I've just started my own little production company, and I run a platform called Script Revolution as well.
0: Before we jump into your work as a screenwriter and your creative journey so far, um, I'd like to know as a teenager, what was the first film you really appreciated on an artistic level?
1: Oh, crikey, now on an artistic level, that's that's a very interesting question. I would say it would perhaps be something like Blade Runner. That's something that really sticks out to me because I think that was the first film I watched which really took me into another world that felt much larger than life and where the amount of effort that had gone into the detail felt above and beyond. Um and, and, and I think it's something if if I go back to at any point it absolutely outstands me. Um, and I and I think it stands the test of time as well as a result of that.
0: In terms of that sort of Movie, it's an interesting one because, in terms of its sort of visual look, um, as you said, the details that have gone into it, it's very immersive. But in terms of sort of story, it's always people have always sort of said that it's a very sort of like cold uh story, someone that's sort of not necessarily that complex. Um, how, how do you
1: actually relate to those characters in that story and how do they kind of speak to you? Well, I think. One of the reasons why that film, you know, and I was kind of like when you asked me, I was kind of weighing it up between that and Mad Max to the road warrior was that for some reason, the idea of a dystopia really had a profound effect on me. And I think, you know, as, as a human being, I'm someone who's perhaps quite cynical, perhaps quite depressive, perhaps quite fatalistic, mm. And I, I there was something about that that really drew me in that was really quite life-affirming and i guess as a teenager at the time the idea that you would take all your creative energy and pour it into something that's actually quite horrific and terrifying and negative really opened my eyes to the power of of what art actually is It's that it it can be brutal and it can be dark but it really becomes life-affirming when it's truthful
0: and so, just leading on from that question for a moment, do you remember the first time you saw a style, a clothing, or outlook on life that you really identified with, and you kind of copied and made your own?
1: And how has your creative identity changed over the years? Clothing, that that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I'm I'm someone who who wore a lot of clothes that were hand-me-downs until i was probably about 16 or 17 <laughs> and, and <laughs> it was it was a girl about my age at the time just tore me to shreds one day and said you and your hand-me-down clothes and things like that mm. and i remember you know making quite a an effort at the time to do something about that but this was the late 90s this was kind of you know the tank girl era right and I remember jumping on that whole kind of punk skater bandwagon, you know, like, you know, some of the characters in Clueless, you know, the skaters in, in that film mm. and things like that. And that drew me in. Um, but then I, I got into the more darker stuff. And, and obviously things like death metal associated with that. And, you know, it became the the clothing that went around that, that kind of grunge phase mm. that a lot of people my generation went through. You know, with the baggy clothing and things like that, um, and, and yeah, I definitely saw it as as a, a part of my identity. But in my case, I put a lot of that energy more into things like the car I drove right. and the music I blasted out the windows. I think that was how I better expressed myself. I'm someone who has a lot of social anxiety, so the idea of going clothes shopping is quite terrifying. <laughs> and just picking up about
0: that uh, about your car, so what was it, and what kind of music were you sort of blasting around? in your car at that time?
1: Well, I I was very fortunate in that my father installed a second-hand satellite dish, one of those big old white satellite mm. dishes, the early ones that he managed to get, and we had MTV. Um, and MTV in 1994, 1995 was very different to the MTV we've come to know. It would just played a lot of very alternative music from, I'd say mainly Europe, but obviously, you know, America as well. And at the time, you know, it was, it was that kind of new metal thing where they yeah. were fusing a lot of rock and rap together. And, and I loved that, you know, I was into the Beastie Boys, but you know, I was also into a lot of aggressive rock bands as well. And I was and, and I got into the modified car scene. So it was all about having these huge speakers in your mm. car, massive, massive, massive amounts of bass, you know, that could set off a car alarms off and caused all your windows to to rattle. So it was very much a case, you know, what tracks hit the heaviest.
0: So just taking that sort of youthful, exuberant energy, and I guess some like somewhat sort of anti-establishment as well. How's that sort of changed for you? Because I guess like the, as you progress through your life, the anger of you sort of changes as you interact uh, with the world, and it sort of teaches you different things. But
1: do you still keep a thread of that through your work? Honestly, it's like nothing's changed. Um, going, getting into writing, which I did late in life, and getting into movie making, which I've done, you know, in, in middle age. Um, has really brought me back to a lot of that and, and my life situations change like for instance you know I've got divorced I've moved back with my parents temporarily mm. and thus I've kind of come back to a lot of these roots my close friends are still very much embedded in these roots back in my hometown and I still listen to the same tracks and I still put a lot of this out and I think one of the great things about being a creative is that you actually effectively you you cause these cycles to come round. So you pull from your early 20s or your teens mm. and you bring back a lot of that energy and give it to another generation. And what's really interesting. It's because I work with filmmakers. My own, in my own generation, we're actually a lot of us. If we realise, is that kind of mid nineties vibe? Mm. We're kind of bringing it back in all and everything from the from the style to the tone of the story to the music as well. Right. Um, so just moving on from that, um, I became
0: I first became aware of you and your work on LinkedIn after reading a post, um, which you made in December twenty twenty, which is about your film. Break even being released in North America. So the two things that stood out for me about that post was firstly your mental health breakdown in 2012 and being dyslexic. So how has mental health and learning difficulties impacted
1: your career as a screenwriter so far? Um, in terms of impact, I actually think, and it's a difficult one to say, I would never want to imply that having mental health issues is ever a positive um however getting out of mental health issues or rebuilding your way out or tackling them does give you a lot of benefits it's one of these things um you know a lot of people who have been through severe depression say i get on so well with other people who've been through it because Mm -hmm. they've had that fear that scare that rebuild and they've learned a lot because i think that brings a lot of authenticity to your person. And I think that it causes you to go out there and and kind of wear your heart on your sleeve and be very honest and very humble and very appreciative of what you have. And I think that is very unusual in the film business. It's, it's, it's not common for people to go out there and basically say, look, it's not about the money for me. It's about friendships. It's about, artistry mm. and i'm here to be vulnerable and exposed and tell people what i think so on the mental health side i i think dealing with it and battling through it helped obviously the rawness of the emotion helps because you put that back into your artistry it's the yeah you know, i mean it's it, that, that that's always the duality of being a creative if you're going to be realistic about the world and the dyslexia thing i didn't I didn't actually I didn't actually deal with the reality of dyslexia until really quite late on. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I learned more about what dys- dyslexia actually is, and that it's it's just an alternative way of learning. And it's this test you can do with people where you say Think of the word up, what do you visualize? And dyslexics will tend to visualize an image of mm-hmm. looking up at something, whereas non-dyslexics will see the word up. They will visualize the actual letters. And that's one of the reasons why dyslexics struggle to to spell and remember how to 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 form words and remember how to pronounce words because we don't see words we see a visual representation and that is just the imaginative brain in action that's all it is so i see that as a big positive as well i think it's 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 very common for for dyslexics to have some form of Uh, for creators to have some form of dyslexia the only downside is is that you typically learn by memory when it comes to it's kind of muscle memory you learn by muscle memory to write and type sometimes i cannot get my fingers to start on the keyboard and i cannot start writing and that drives me crazy
0: so not to get sort of too personal here but i just want to go back to that breakdown in 2000 in 12 and sort of locate that tipping point where you realised you needed to make that change in your life form. Um, I believe at the time you were working at an advertising agency of some kind um, and you wanted to follow a more creative sort of like pathway. So what were the kind of, I guess, like the beginnings of that sort of breakdown, you going through your lowest point to the point where you knew that you needed to make this change and then you, took the, you had the courage to make it?
1: Yeah, it was... Um... It was that kind of dark night of despair situation that some of us eventually face. And what it was is I was I was working freelance at the time as a as a freelance marketing and web services supplier. So I was doing websites, print design and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd been doing it for something like about probably about fifteen years at the time I'd started in my mid teens. Right. And I'd had a lot of success with it. I'd done I mean, when I was at school, I was doing stuff for, you know, Lego doing 3d renderings for them at the time and i went off and i got a a good job and i had my own office and then i became a director and i worked for myself Mm -hmm. and it was pretty good but i'd had bouts of depression during that that i'd faced and in 2012 i'd had some of the best years of my life financially and then it all started to fall apart around me. Um, The the hard thing about being a freelance supplier in that industry is your clients eventually outgrow you. You, Especially if they're big business-to-business clients, they get to a point where they can't use some guy in his bedroom Mm -hmm. in the Midlands anymore. They need to go to an agency and you lose all these retainers. And what happened was is I lost... A very valuable retainer and a friend of mine in Dubai walked into his office to find that they'd had quite an aggressive takeover from a, a competing oil company and he had to right. pack his bags and leave the country. And it was like I lost everything um in one fell swoop. And I I went for a few weeks just trying to carry on being normal. And then I just one day I just threw up all this emotion. Mm. Ended up on the floor in fits of tears. Cats staring at me, confused, thinking I might have to call my partner and tell her, you know, that, that I needed to need help. Mm. And of course, you know, wiped the tears off, sat back down, and carried on like nothing had happened. But there was no getting away from it. And it was a combination of not having any work, not being able to sleep, being. S- that at the computer in the day, it was this mm. kind of thing where I was like, I have all these things going through my head at night. Why don't I start writing them down and pursuing this this dream? Um, and a lot of it came back to, oddly enough, my partner, she, our first Christmas, which would have been a good 10 years before, she she bought me a book and it was a book all about Tarantino. And I reread this book and that just sparked something where nice. I was like, I maybe could have a shot at this
0: just my sort of final question and sort of relates to the beginning one in terms of your identity at the beginning so you were a very successful freelancer and your identity was built around this and as that sort of slowly disintegrated so did your sort of sense of self um again like i'm projecting my own thoughts onto this is maybe not how you felt about it um but there had to be there had to be something else kind of there within you to rebuild and reshape this identity to, uh, to find a purpose within um, within the world to be able to contribute uh, something. Um, was that a sort of a factor at all? Because I'm very interested in the idea of the identities that we build for ourselves, but they mm-hmm. are dramatically reshaped as we go through a uh, life. Is there something to that about that?
1: It's an interesting topic and there's this thing they call a pivot that I've read about and it's this situation where someone finds out partway through their life um that they they seemingly seem to take a sudden left turn and they 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 pursue aggressively pursue or passionately pursue what feels like a radically different career path that they would never expected to have gone down mm. um however if they actually piece things back and they look at things like their hobbies their pastimes the conversations they've had what they were doing when they were younger it all fits right. what was the most bizarre for me was that it was writing when i was at school uh, my english teacher hated me she hated that i did well in my exams because i didn't pay attention in class um, I got through on the basis that I was using computers at a very early age, so I had the, the spell check to, to fix everything. But when I I looked at school or my teen years and how often I was watching film and how much I cared about film, and then I and how, and I was drawing and illustrating, imagining all this stuff, and then I look at my working life. I, all I spoke about with my coworkers of my own age was film. Right all the time but at no point until i had this massive breakdown did i really think oh i should take a shot at it i i did have all fairness there was a friend of mine lovely guy called called john who i used to work with and 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 i was telling him about these ideas that i had and his jaw dropped and, right. and he was like dude you have to do this and the funny thing was he was doing work as an extra at the time he was pursuing film at the time so mm it all fits when I when I look back so I just want to jump into
0: your day-to-day writing process for a moment so how does inspiration strike you
1: via music almost always um sometimes well it depends conceptually it's usually if I'm watching a film that will trigger ideas for my own stories Mm -hmm. conceptually at that that kind of level um particularly now but it's when it comes to scenes, characters, major moments, huge emotional um, elements, it's it's music because I spend quite a, a few hours per week looking for new music. I, I've spent a huge portion of my life searching for new music. It's going back to that MTV era of hearing new songs and it inspiring me. And I still do that now where I'll spend many an evening just going through tunes and just playing movie scenes through my head now and, and i do develop a lot from there mm. and then i'll lie in bed and before i go to sleep uh, you know there's stuff there as well okay so in terms of your writing
0: process of when you're sat down in front of your computer it, just talk me through that so you sat there you have your music going and then what kind of happens how do you sort of piece things together okay
1: so the music thing i keep very separate so the music thing um i just let my mind go i just I just let that go where I want. And I might make some notes, something like that on my phone or on my computer. But usually I just I just keep going. I keep going, keep going. And I don't like to commit to writing stuff down too early because then it solidifies a mm. lot of stuff. I actually quite like to just keep developing things in my head over and over again and keep coming back to them on, on a, on a kind of spiritual level, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah what i have in terms of development is i actually have my own development process which i call turn and burn which i've been developing for a while now and you can find that on, on scriptrevolution.com which is the website i run where i've got an education section and i've shared a lot of this and this turn and burn process i have breaks concepts down breaks endings down and it breaks story structure down into these five elements which is yearn turn burn learn and earn which are the five stages of, of, of a character arc. So what I can do is I can take all these kind of chaos and notes and things like that and then I can actually start, okay then, let's start baking a story out of all these ingredients. And and that works really well for me. So just could you just give like a brief example of that process just for
0: the for the listeners, just have a better idea of that.
1: Okay. So for instance, um Let's take uh, so, the last story I wrote. so the last story I wrote. So last story I wrote is a story called Oversteer. It's based on a short script. It was about um, it's about a, a, gr- a group of bank robbers who get into a car accident and they're gradually trying to make their way to a, a rendezvous point where they're mm-hmm. going to catch a plane and exit to Mexico. I had. Like the very beginning of that, I had some moments from that, but I didn't have a cohesive story. I didn't have a theme. I didn't have a meaning. So what I will do is I will sit down with what I have and I will take all these kind of beats and notes and, bit, and snappy little bits of dialogue and whatever, and, I, and I'll just have a, I'll just have a, a load of notes on that. They don't, they don't necessarily mean anything. But what I will do, usually the first thing I'll do is I will literally write yearn, um, turn, burn, learn, earn, those those headings, mm-hmm. and I will write what happens in each. So I'll, so I'll say, right, who's my my main main character? What does she want? What does she want in, at the start of this? What's the love story? Um, what's the boon? What, what's, what are the conflicts? And then I, I will just go through it. I say, okay, how does the world change? And sometimes I will jump further down, mm-hmm. and the two key points I'm looking for is what life truth so it's it's, i call it the point of realization it's 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 in the story where your main protagonist realizes something about life and they usually realize that at a very low moment that um that 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 life is about something more than the situation they're in and and that empowers them to go Mm -hmm. into the final act and then In your finale, I feel there should always be a point of acceptance. I think one of the – the one that most people are familiar with is in Chinatown, where it's that, you know, forget it, it's Chinatown moment, which is this really, really, really life-affirming truth. It's a negative ending. Um, You know, it's a bitter ending, But it's an incredibly profound truth that sometimes you cannot change the world around you. So I'm looking for that point of acceptance as well because if I can get that, I have my theme. I know what this story is about. I know what the big lesson is about. If I have my theme, then what I can do is I can develop the early parts of my story to bring in different points of view. So every character has a point of view on the main theme that they're communicating Right. so in the case of chinatown maybe you've got a character or you do have a character who absolutely believes that you can bring in change or maybe you've got another character who believes that um, you can bring in change in different ways or the or maybe you shouldn't try to change things because of those other effects and the whole thing becomes a a discussion within the subtext i see i see
0: and i guess like finally on your
1: sort of writing process what keeps you motivated to finish I, I'm what I call an 80 percenter. I'm not a perfectionist. Right. And um, I've grown up around people who don't finish things. And, and I think you always become the opposite of that by default in life. Um, I don't like to leave anything unfinished. But what I won't do is I won't keep polishing something to the point where it's obsessive mm-hmm. and i'm very fortunate i feel very lucky not to be a perfectionist because if you're an 80 percenter you get to an end point having put in less than half the work of a hundred percent you know they they have to put in so much more to get to the ending mm-hmm. and they can overthink things so badly and and end up really and they, and they go through a lot of pain to get there so i feel very lucky in that just generally my psychology is like that right. but what i do is is i write what are called scriptments and i and i have i lay all the beats of my story out i have um scene writing templates on top you know of the uh, main story templates Mm. so i plot my journey very carefully and then i'm i'm free to just go for it and have fun i know exactly how far i've got to go i know what kind of page count i've got to hit Mm. and generally at that point it becomes an indulgence and i don't resent doing it which is huge in the Mm. creative process so many people hate what they should love because all they care about is the result and not the process. Mm.
0: So just moving on from that for a moment, um, you've mentioned Script Revolution. So you started it back in 2016. It's a script hosting uh, website where writers can upload and share their work to a community of fellow writers, producers and directors. So can you tell me why you started Script Revolution and how it's grown over
1: the years? I started that because... I I felt a tremendous amount of pain out there that I could empathise with. Mm-hmm. Um, things have things changed a lot between kind of 2000 and I think it was 2012 um, from kind of 2010. Before before 2012, you could go out, you could query um and it cost you nothing and you generally got you know indifferent replies you didn't really necessarily get negative replies from people Mm. you'd get rejection but it was kind of a case of um thanks but no thanks feel free to free to knock on our door again in the future so people kept going and they kept thinking well you know i can always go out and i can email these people Mm. and then the blacklist launched and kind of put a payment gateway on access in that you were expected to pay to host a script you're expected to pay for an evaluation before people would really take it seriously and so many people jumped on that it kind of validated it as this kind of gatekeeping process mm. because because you could just join a website rather than trying to obtain people's email addresses or network so people it became a, the, the path of least resistance wasn't necessarily set up to be a cynical operation it's just how it was adopted and that kind of validated the process and by 2016 there was a few other websites out there all following this same model and it felt like everyone was talking about how you had to enter a competition or you had to pay for an evaluation Mm. buy coverage pay to have your website So so pay to have your script listed on a website and what I was seeing was people losing hope and feeling that they were priced out of the game and the pain hurt me to see and also it was obvious that this was hurting people who were the most financially vulnerably. Mm-hmm unfairly disproportionately it was it was it was starting it felt like it was turning the act of breaking into screenwriting really a factor of who has the most money to gamble yeah to to keep rolling the dice at the table and i had some web development background and i'd spent years just thinking for crying out loud will someone just please build a database allow people to submit scripts allow anyone to go on and read no cliques nothing like that it's not that difficult and i and i didn't want it to be me but 2016 mm. july the 4th i was thinking of the american revolution that caused this chain reaction where i thought huh script revolution that would be a great name for that website i kind of don't actually want to build but should build and then that was it a month right. later first of august i launched it and and it's and it's it's been tough to grow because it's because the only form of of marketing i had for years until very recently was word of mouth and podcasts like this right and um, none of the the big platforms still really want to talk about the site it's almost like they would rather they would sweep it under the rug and I, I still don't know why that is yeah that's interesting i mean i was
0: just reading your um post on mental health and screenwriting which kind of covers this to- uh, topic of toxic communities um, I used to be a member of Right to Real as well, which was a script sharing website where you could get unproduced Hollywood sort of scripts mm. and then people um would submit their own work and then you'd have these agents or well, supposed agents there giving feedback on people's work. And it was and it also relating back to your post it's almost like the crab bucket situation. You're a tiny little crab and you're trying to get out of the bucket and you kind of get halfway there and all these other crabs, all they want to do is just pull you back in. They're not interested mm. in success. You getting your work out though, or meeting somebody or forging your career. They're very much interested in you being that miasma of the struggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, writing communities in general, not just screenwriting communities, just writing communities and a lot of creative communities tend to be quite snarky and bitter. Mm -hmm. Um, There tends to be a lot of people who are angry and frustrated and feel powerless and are quite self-destructive hanging out on the internet. And we have to accept that forums on the internet are like dive bars. They really are. They're, They're a place where the majority of people go because they're bored, because they're unheard, because they don't feel, you know, respected or or wanted by the people that are around them. And you get a lot of, you know, what I would call bar flies hanging out in these places. And a lot of the time they aren't really the kind of people you should aspire to be. And just like a lot of bar flies who hang out, you know, drinking pint after pint and telling you how the world works. They have a lot Mm. of grandiose claims about themselves and how the world works, and they want to be seen as the most knowledgeable person in the room, even though they they can't prove any of this. And there's this kind of tall poppy syndrome that that seems to go on where – if you are exciting, rebellious, if you want to do things, if you want to go places, if you start to see traction, mm. then for some reason they feel they need to jump in and, and try and knock you down to build themselves up. And if you are suffering through mental health issues, and wow, you know, I'd say almost almost all creatives tend to be. That's why, that's why the creativity is the medicine. Mm. Um, you can really become quite vulnerable to that.
0: Just my sort of one last sort of question on communities, and I wonder if you've had any experience of this. So the London uh, Screenwriters Festival is uh, held yearly. Um, have you had any experience of that? And have you been, have you have you spoken there? Do you know anybody um, who runs it or anything like that?
1: No, I, I don't touch things like that with a barge pole personally because um, the organisers um, often tend to fall into the trap of... Going out and booking people with big mouths and and very little actual credentials Mm. who think they've worked everything out and don't just get off on the factor, but actually monetize the factor of instilling fear in people and then selling them this snake oil that they've come up with they, they are the kind of people quite often who will shout fire in a crowded movie theater just so they can sell water at the door and I have a real problem with that and I've seen so many people come out of those kind of festivals Mm -hmm. saying, oh, wow, I went to this talk by so-and-so and and now I'm buying their book and now I'm taking their course and they really hammered home all these truths and here's a set of 10 rules that say that this is why you're going to fail and at no point have they just put their name into IMDB or anything like that and look them up Mm so that's one of the reasons why i don't go i i find also there's there's very little benefit of being around other screenwriters it's this bizarre thing where creators will stick with creators in their exact role and you need to get out of that i go down to rain dance i i watch the stage 32 short film screening down there and i go to the stage 32 meet afterwards because it's a really nice crowd of people we we've We stay out till the early hours. We chat. A lot of people are very connected, but no one's really trying to sell anything. You're Mm -hmm. just chatting about movie history or about what you're doing. And that's the side of things I prefer where there's these more kind of friendly, organic, fun chats between people who are all trying to cut it in their own way rather than this person standing up on a pedestal putting themselves on a pedestal and saying, I have all the answers, but I can't prove any of them work. Now, I just want to
0: jump into one of your recent short films, um, Black SUV, that was released in 2019. Mm. So
1: what's the story about and why did you want to make this film? I'd been watching too much House of Cards <laughs> and I, Frank Underwood was in my head mm-hmm. and it was this, this idea of, um, you know, a Frank Underwood-type character going around town making deals because deep down he's the devil um it's you know it's that one of my favorite short films from the past oddly enough comes from a, a set of short films that BMW actually went out and made so you know the car manufacturer so BMW realized they couldn't do adverts with cars racing around anymore that had been banned in most countries so what they did is they commissioned a set of short films i think they were called the, the higher or for higher yeah yeah i remember which yeah. were kind of bond-esque yeah, they were big they went viral on the internet and they brought in hollywood's best directors and talent and one of my absolute all-time favorites is the one by tony scott called beat the devil mm-hmm. which is about going back to the devil and 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 de- you know trying to renegotiate this deal before there's this very fast and future type chase out of out of Vegas so it was coming back it was kind of mashing those two things together so it was the idea of just this you know what can be done really cheap and easy and and um, imply a lot going on so yeah it's this uh it's a guy being driven around in a in a in a black SUV by a secret service agent who's female Mm mm-hmm who he's constantly toying with and constantly in this kind of strategic battle with emotionally whilst doing these deals with people and collecting on his deals in the background. So one thing I'd like to pick out, and I think it's a common experience that many
0: screenwriters face, is the writer's version of the character versus the actor's portrayal of them on screen. So what are the major differences between, and I'm probably going to butcher this guy's last name, I think it's Frank Kozniček, Yes. Um, so he plays Mr Black in the film um, and so what are the differences between the Mr Black in the film and the Mr Black walking, talking around your mind as you're writing the script
1: well I think you know Frank took it to a very kind of operatic performance where Mr Black was very expressive and very proactive and very in people's face uh faces ab- about his his values and his beliefs where i had someone who was in my head who was who was very very droll mm-hmm. uh men quiet and confident about it but i really loved what he did because he put so much of himself into that and if there's something i really strongly believe in is that the script i write is a gift to the team and mm-hmm. I want them to creatively explore that, that character and go on a journey. And I, and I love it when people surprise me, when they take it in a new direction. You know, when I first went through that process, I'm not going to lie, it hit me hard. It was like, how dare how dare this be any different to mm. the, the picture I had in my mind that yeah. absolutely no one can actually see because it's just translated into black and white words. Um, and I found that very tough at first, but now I've really come to enjoy it because at the end of the day, um, I value the fun of making something just as much as I value the results. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not... I'm not that kind of person who who's trying to enforce um, some kind of my own personal um, creative goal on everyone else, Mm. if that makes sense. And
0: I did do a quick IMDb search on the director, GT. Um, mm-hmm. He's got a background in making music videos. So I just wondered, and also I should just sort of say that this film was shot in New York. So, how did you kind of like link up with GT and uh, film in New York? And were you there
1: present um, when the film was taking place? So that was back in the day when I was putting a lot of my stuff onto simply scripts. In fact, it was during a phase where I'd stopped writing feature scripts altogether. I didn't see the point and I was focused entirely on writing short scripts. So I'd write I'd write a short script, you know, about one a week, every other week, something like that. Um, so I'd end up with about, you know, 25 or 30 shorts in a year. And that really helped me refine my story writing process and my character development process. That was like um, a, tr- a boot camp training I was doing in 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 my own world. And then what I was doing I was I was sort of submitting them to Simply Scripts because at the time they were hosting a group called Shooting the Shorts mm-hmm. that's run by Janet E. Clarke. And Shooting the Shorts is just this amazing group of people who they just read through a ton of short scripts and they look for the ones that stand out and they read, they write these really positive glowing reviews that feature them and they put them out there on the net and, and shooting the shorts is now part of script revolution, mm-hmm. they came across the script revolution but at the time they were simply scripts run by Don Boos, great guy uh, really inspired a lot of script revolution and um, it got spotted by director GT on there and I was really happy about that um, because because of their demographic background you know these guys are really hustling their way up the system in New York and, and mm. doing some exciting stuff and they they paid me enormous enormous amount of credit in that film it was entirely done by themselves I didn't right. go across for it um they did ask questions they did they did come to me the the, the cast asked questions as well but you know it was a completely independent production and I'm, I'm really proud of what they did so lastly on
0: black SUV, what impact did it have in your screen uh, screenwriting career and how do you personally judge the creative and professional success of
1: that short film i was surprised by the lack of the lack of progress you get off a short film right. as a writer um, and the lack of progress people get off short films anyway i think that the nature of the short film market now politically combined with how common it is now to have short film festivals, has has really kind of nullified a lot of the career benefits that directly come from them. What and to, to expand on that, mm. you know, the, the 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 former part of that that response is the the short film market has become so politicized and, and it, it typically is politicized. It's always been more arty and less commercial than feature film production by its nature. But it has become so socially conscious in the last 10 years now that the political values of the film seem to have overtaken everything else to the point now where the the festival itself seems to be trying to make some kind of political statement. And it's become a little kind of like a... A headless chicken in mm. that in that way and a lot of the time if if i watch a short film festival it's middle class people drinking prosecco talking about how they did a kickstarter campaign to raise awareness of this issue that's so close to their hearts which wasn't close to their hearts a year before they needed to make this film Mm. it's just that they i feel like a lot of them jump on a bandwagon that's socially conscious that has been talked about since the beginning of time um I, i know a lot of domestic abuse sufferers and i'm not dismissing how horrific and awful and how we need to address that area of life but when someone comes to me and it's like i'm doing a short film to raise awareness of domestic abuse it's kind of like yeah you and the two million other people before you Mm. like you're not doing anything different you're not you're not spinning that you're not doing something new with that that's that's really profoundly truthful it's like a lot of it is just leveraging um an emotional side of politics to just get the funding and get promoted and kind of almost like i don't know um exploit it for their own gain that's what that's what i feel that's what kind of i feel a little bit i i, I don't that's one of the reasons i don't like a lot of the process right. and and the festivals now so if you were to if if you were to just put in a damn good short film that isn't trying to express anything political which Unnecessary or isn't politically correct. Right. You cannot succeed within these festivals because they don't want to be associated with stuff that's going to get shut down, you know, via social media or people are going to respond badly or say, "I was offended." I was, I was offended. You've got a lot of kids coming out of film school now who they cannot go into the art gallery without being prepared to be offended by the contents, rather than just accept that those are other people's views. Mm. So I think that someone like me, not that I write controversial stuff, I just write very middle-of-the-road, non-political stuff. And as a result of that, I don't think it can compete. My work also feels very much like it's serialized, like it's really leading on to something else. It doesn't wrap itself up. I don't don't pretend to be a brilliant short-script writer. So as a result of that... I don't feel there's a lot of career progression for people. And even if a short film you've written goes on to be the biggest thing in the world and gets an Oscar, no one cares about the writer. Anyway, they care about the director and they care about the lead actors. That's life. Mm. So you're never going to launch yourself. I don't think really, off the back of a short script, you do it, you do it to learn. you do it to, to learn about working with people, learn about collaboration to experience these things to go through the process and to kind of galvanize your little, yourself a little bit to the emotional journey that you will go through having a film made from your words
0: right um so just following on from that um I'd like to jump into your debut feature film break even starring um I'm I'm dyslexic as well so I'm going to butcher these names as well so I think it's Tasha Ta- Tal- Tales. uh so Tasha them- Talas but- yep. yeah Uh, Steve Guttenberg, that's an obvious one. I think I can get that one. And then uh, James Callis. So uh, what's the story about and what was the creative process of getting that film made?
1: That was quite an interesting one. It was was a bizarre set of circumstances um, where a lot of things in the universe just seemed to align in unlikely ways. I'd been out blogging, um, big mouth going out there, shouting it off everywhere I could, putting everything on the table, how I felt about the industry and everything else. And a director called Shane Stanley, who'd effectively retired um, from filmmaking at the time. He'd had a lifelong career. He'd mm. um, executive produced the Gridiron Gang, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson, which had been a box office number one. He was. He wanted to get into into teaching film, and he had a book, an amazing book of his called What You Don't Learn in Film School. And um, he was. He'd been. I'd been made aware to him as someone out there who is reviewing books and things like Mm -hmm. that. And Shane's kind of nature is he doesn't just jump in and say, read my book and review it. He looks at a person as, as a whole entity and wants to get to know them. Well, of course, he starts reading all my blogs. He likes what I have to say because it's quite controversial. I hated Hollywood. That's a great way to get people in Hollywood to like you is because you know someone's in this industry when they hate the industry. And he ended up reading my scripts and I didn't believe it at first. I thought he was just trying to get me to read and review his book. And Mm then we ended up having a Skype conversation and he said, so um, yeah, your script for your dreams. Um, I I, I want to come out of retirement and make it somehow. And Mm -hmm. that was just bizarre. But the issue was at the time was I had this spec script about kind of Thelma and Louise, two young women in a muscle car racing across um Texas was with a, a bag of drugs in the car getting into trouble. Um he was like, but it's not commercial enough. It's effectively it's a, a dirt movie or a dust movie. Mm. It contains controversial aspects. He had a brain trust of people he was going to and they said, you know, it needs more production value. It it and if, if we're gonna sell this wide then it needs some changes so he wanted, He said well can you make it can you set it on a boat can you have them going to LA Um, c- can we change the drugs to money and things like that and I said dude I, there's no point in me hacking this script up I'm going to write you a new one Right. And, you know no contract no promises no option no nothing I just boom I'm just like I'm writing you a script whether you like it or not and we were so on the same wavelength we wanted to do the same things and he got really excited. And I, I just trusted the guy. I was like, I know this guy can do it. I have the utmost mm. faith. I'll get paid when it goes to green light. And, yeah, I, I wrote that. It took me a while because I was doing it around my day job. You know, I was still freelancing. So it took six weeks to, right. to write. Um, but, yeah, I had this really grey kind of Fast and Furious on Water type script that we went out and shot, we got funded, and we we shot in the following um, March, April. So what's the process
0: of him giving you notes and feedbacks and working on that script so it's ready to shoot? I
1: was giving it to him in acts. So I would send the first, and I write in five acts. So I would send him at one, and the first time I did that, it was terrifying. I had been told by everyone that it only gets harder, it only gets tougher, it only gets more brutal, and there will always be notes. Mm. And those notes will be conflicting, they will be backward, they won't make sense, they will invalidate each other and all these other issues. I would log on to Skype with Shane, we'd go through it, and he'd just say, oh yeah, there's a typo, here, a typo, here, He's, he's a fellow dyslexic as well. So it was just typos and dialogue tweaks, and I couldn't believe it. So... By the time I sent the, the final act, which I, I managed to get to him on his birthday in July, yeah. um, he um, he was just, it's wonderful, it's brilliant, a few little tweaks. We were both just loving the process all the way through.
0: And I read online, is there any truth to it's actually based on elements of Shane's life?
1: That is true, yeah. Um, Shane's been in the business for. You know since he, since, i mean he was basically you know went straight out of the cot through makeup and onto the set as a child actor so mm. you know shane you wouldn't think it but he is he is getting towards the the latter half of his 40s and he's seen and done it all um and he knows a lot of people and he's been connected to some some powerful people in his life and various other things and he's been to some dark places as well and yes he has known people who have stumbled upon millions of dollars and put a plan together and contacted mm. a lawyer and decided you know in some cases I mean, well, in that case plan to leave their partner in the process and just run for it um and he's known you know jacks based on a, a woman in his own life a fascinating um character who hung out with um you know, it was the Hells Angels bikers at the right. time. And she was this really mysterious character who seemed to come from a very dark and dangerous past and had very dark and dangerous family connections who just disappeared off the planet and he never saw again. So um, elements of that were, were brought in for break even. And so just jumping onto the day-to-day work. Uh,
0: so how did you cr- uh, collaborate with Shane and share the creative work like? Uh, with him um, on set, and were there any last minute re- uh, rewrites at all?
1: So, yeah, the onset process was tough and it was a real baptism of fire in, in many ways for both of us. Shane had never taken on a project of this size and what you have to understand about someone like shane is he's he he has completely thrown himself into the world of being an indie rat um after years of working with studios and doing big projects Mm. he just feels like if you're going to do it take complete creative control of that but of course you're playing with a budget which is well the equivalent of the 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 catering budget for a large movie we did break even on six hundred thousand dollars which is about you know one tenth of what you should make a movie like that on um and as a result of that you know you are pulling in favors you are putting on every hat you can and you are incredibly vulnerable to any kind of issues and oh boy it, we we kind of joked about the production being cursed in some ways. And I was out there with them in around L.A. for the shoot. And it was every day was another huge hurdle to try and get over. Everything from being caught in storms to all the electrics on a yacht blowing up and almost having to call out the coast guard because we had no stabilizers to the crew getting sick on stunt days to the hero car catching fire on a different stunt day to, you know, in some cases. So, you know, break even, we shot a, we shot a two hour movie. We had to We had to bring it down to 90 minutes for the trade festivals. Mm -hmm. Um, So we shot more than you see in the movie. And on top of that, we had entire action sequences planned out that we couldn't shoot because things like, for instance, we couldn't erect the green screen safely because of – Sudden gale force winds in Van Nuys where we were shooting, or we couldn't do an attack on the yacht which we had planned, which we had an entire other boat purchased to shoot because the yacht electrics had blown and we couldn't go out into the ocean with it. So, yeah, it was major rewrites, right? Uh, every other day, it was holy shit, we have 11 pages to shoot we have four hours in the day left because makeup has and turning things around has been really really tough to do with the number of cast members and shane would look at me and he's like cj i'm sorry i need you to throw seven pages out now somehow and and i went through that process which a lot of people would find heartbreaking, where you start, you know, killing your babies. But the thing is, when you're watching a director-producer push themselves to a point of, of, of having a fever, who are helping people load a grip truck at 3 a.m. at night and then getting one hour's sleep and writing checks for the cast in the morning, so the crew in the morning, you, you really empathise with that. And you think, you know what, this needs to get done – investors have a lot of money tied up in this. People need the credits. This movie has to get finished. Mm -hmm. And there's just something about the camaraderie and the brigade that you build and your dedication to your investors. Do you just prioritize that over this preciousness, over these words? And the thing is, you've always got that draft. You can always send someone the draft that you originally wrote and said, that was my vision. Mm. That was what, that was the perfect, that was what we intended to shoot. So my question is, so somebody does suffer
0: from mental health issues. How did you handle the stress of that on a day-to-day basis? And how did you stay sort of healthy and functioning? Because that's an extreme amount of stress to put on oneself.
1: It was. I, I'm not going to lie. So in the first few days of shooting, we had sailed three boats out to two harbors Catalina um I'd had a rough day or two where a member of the production team had basically threatened me with being thrown off set if I was a problem um, and I'd made a couple of unfortunate mistakes where I'd like missed the boat, trying to get the memory cards out to the yacht in the morning and taking that really heavy as a failure on myself. Right. And I started to become more and more paranoid that I was just going to mess things up by trying too hard or taking too much on. You know, I make this joke um, where sometimes I'm just helpful enough to be a problem where, you know, I'll jump in and try and help, but I, 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 I can't deliver maybe on something. And I beat myself up a lot about that. And I was downstairs in the salon of the sailboat um, doing some script supervision, which I found really, really hard to do, again, because of distraction and dyslexia. Right. And we were all crammed in, there. it was red hot. And I had a moment, I had a real moment where I, I almost broke down like it really got to me and I'm like, Oh my God, it's all falling apart. You know, it's, this is, this is not what I wanted. Um, but what I did was that night was I shared, I shared that with Shane and he explained mm-hmm. that what I was, I was, you know, I was going through a state of paranoia. I didn't really understand what was going on fully, um, that I needed to, to worry less about threats that I was getting because they weren't coming from someone who actually had any influence. Right. And and that put it all to bed. And pretty much from that day on I did find socializing with californians hard as a guy from stoke on trent i'm not gonna lie yeah. very different people in some respects i didn't understand some areas of etiquette and that was hard and also you don't really have a team as a writer on set you're very much on your own some people really don't want you there some people love you being there it can be every day can be different um but generally speaking it was mental health wise some of you're probably the the best six weeks I had in a long time. So
0: one thing I was want to bring out of this particular experience is that the Hollywood actor, Steve Guttenberg, who plays Lance in Breakeven, mm-hmm. well, he was a huge movie star in the 1980s, Three Men and a Baby, Police Academy, Short Circuit. He's very much treasured, sorry, trash, <laughs> cherished, if I can say that word correctly, yes. um, in the hearts of people of a certain age. And I just wonder what your experience
1: was of getting to meet him and work with him. You know, um, it's really interesting because... Because the first so – it was it was a really interesting process. Um, so if we ran back to the start, Shane used to run a production company with Charlie Sheen, and because Shane was making a relatively big movie for him, um, he didn't feel that he could um, not have a part for Charlie. Right. So I get a text message like at 3 a.m. one morning saying, can you write something for Charlie? a new character in, um, which was one of the most bizarre situations of a completely unknown screenwriter's life to suddenly get that, where you're suddenly writing for, the, you know, one of the biggest TV stars in recent history and, of mm. course, a hero from your past. And that was a tough day, you know, but I really enjoyed it. I got through it and it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And we send that to Charlie and Charlie, you know, he's getting away from that whole – he's not doing anything with – you know, drugs or guns or anything mm. like that, going down a path of of being, you know, very pure stuff, which is, is not the time. So, it was a case of, well, who do we get? Who who's big? Where do we go? Yeah. And Steve Gutenberg was on Shane's radar. He'd been doing ballers and things like that. And Shane has this close relationship with Dwayne the Rock Johnson as well, who. Actually, no, it was it was, it was was Shane had reconnected in the new year with, with Dwayne Johnson and, and said that he had this situation. We need somebody big to come in, someone perhaps people have forgotten about, someone who could come and do some day player stuff for us. Right. And it was Dwayne who actually suggested Steve Gutenberg to Shane because he'd worked with on ballers and said, you know what, he's, a, he's a, such a lovely guy to work with. He's amazing. And and Dwayne genuinely is like his his profile online. He genuinely is really wholesome and sweet and, and charitable. Mm. So we thought, wow, you know, Steve Gutenberg, that that would be huge. Like this guy's just, you know, such a a, a big guy from, from our past. And yeah, we we, we managed to snag him, who's really excited to play the role, really motivated. And we were shooting in the it was the garages where they used to do pimp my ride right in, in the later seasons so it was for, as a big petrol head myself i was kind of a, at a in a in a mecca in some respects it was like a bit of a car heaven um and in walked steve gunberg and it was the first time i ever got struck on step where i was like terrified to walk over terrified to say hello yeah and I walked over to him and he shook my hand. He's got these big, burly hands. He shook my hand firmly and he looked me right in the eye and he said, great script, love the pacing. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time on set that a cast member had said, this is a good script. Because generally speaking, people assume you know that because they've attached themselves, why else can they be there? But, you know, he's been a, around a long time and, and he, yeah, he, he he just he made sure I knew that. And that level of validation was mind-blowing. And then we got mm. to watch him operate and, you know, he, I sat with him and I chatted a little bit. It was really sweet. i had some really nice informal chats. And he was talking about how one of the first things he learned from a acting coach when he was very young was to always put something new into a scene always do a scene a different way and explore and watching him just enjoy the moment and throw himself into the character was just unbelievable it was inspiring and it, it just it, it lifted a weight on what had been a tough production for a lot of us and mm. um, watching him and he was amazing he, he really was and and I had a lot of people message me on like Facebook and platforms like that to say, Steve Gutenberg. Oh, you know, he was, you know, three men and a little baby was the my favorite film. And he was my favorite actor when I was younger. And yeah, yeah there's a lot of, a lot of Gutenberg support out there and he's really due to go huge. He's really due to have his big thing. And mm. I really, really, it was a privilege to be someone who could remind people of what he can bring to a film. Mm. So just moving on from that, I mean, I haven't
0: seen Breakeven yet, but I've read a few mm-hmm. online reviews and some people have been very positive about it, others negative, negative. Yes. and that's a matter of personal taste. But I want to ask you a broader question here. For you, what is success based on? Is it box office numbers, critical reception, or continuing to collaborate with the creative team behind the
1: film? I think it's, it's, it's a combination of that. I think a big part of any form of artistry is that you know that you're providing medicine. You know, art is medicine. People need something to feel happier, to take their mind off things, to get outside of the world, perhaps they feel trapped in. So for me, it's all about what I create connecting with the right people the people that need that break even is a very female centric film in multiple ways Mm -hmm. not just that it has a lot of female characters within it where you wouldn't normally get female characters but it's a very emotional type of story it's a story that's very much based in you know what are you doing with your life what's your relationship like with the people around you it's those it's those it's those strings the 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 that women tend to pull at more than men, which makes life so much more interesting to interrogate. That it's not a film that's full of action. So, mm-hmm. for me, when the film goes out and it connects with the people that it should be connecting with, that's wonderful. I don't care that, like, some incel in Germany hates the movie because it doesn't have guys running around with guns for 70 of the 90 minutes and cars flipping over like people will people will just hate you for making an indie film that's what i've learned like they'll hate you for just making something that's low budget like like you had the choice right (laughs) so there's that and then there's also did we have fun making it did people manage to go off on a creative exploration of their own in this process? Do people feel fulfilled? So there's there's all that. Did the investors make their money back? Yeah. So there's all those other factors.
0: And that's the thing, like um, I've spoken about this, before with filmmakers is that there's the creative process, there's the act of creating something and once you've created it, it almost becomes like a skin that you've sort of shed in a way that goes out into the world that you've got no control over how other people interact or interface um, with that. And sometimes that thing that's gone out into the world, in some cases, that wasn't the that wasn't the value of the actual project it was the experience it was going through that sort of uh, going through that process should we sort of say and i think that's from what i gather from sort of especially with sort of screenwriting if you're a writer um and as we were speaking about before that what you've written on the page or what you visualized it can be vastly sort of like different and it can be reconciling those two things and also how the creative team judge the success of that endeavor as well
1: yeah and i think that you can easily fall into the trap of thinking your interpretation in your head is the best interpretation and would be the most successful and would connect with the most people. And that's a a fallacy that's easier to believe when your stuff gets changed than Mm -hmm. it is to believe when your stuff doesn't get changed because, you know, someone goes out and makes what you've written word for word, exactly how you imagined it. And then it fails then you have to accept that your interpretation of it wasn't the best necessarily. Mm. So sometimes whilst there can be stuff that's quite jilting, that people take stuff in a different direction or they make changes, that perhaps you're like, wow, I would never have thought of that. That just seems to go against what I originally went with. Um, you have to say that I, sometimes that that's better. Um, mm-hmm. I really struggled with the casting choice of Joanna Pakula as Crow in Break Even because she has a, a very thick Polish accent. Right. I didn't know her too well. Um, people love her, and I love her. When I see when I see the performance, when I work with her, it was like, oh my god, you just you're just so perfect for this, and you're just taking it into, you know, into a into a wonderful area.
0: Um, so I believe you just wrapped on the Double Threat, which is your second feature with Shane. So from a screenwriting point of view, how's COVID-19 impacted your role on the production so far?
1: It, it impacted, it in, in 2020, it impacted in some really tough ways that were really, really hard to deal with. And I'm still in the process of dealing with. Okay. Firstly, we we had to cancel a production that we were going to shoot in, I think it was in June, July, which was a, a, a great little drama that we had, um, but it it featured a, an older male. Um, you know, we're talking 60s, 70s, so there was no way we were going to shoot that and put someone at risk, and mm. obviously we, we were not going to be able to do that for a, for a while now. So there was the cancellation of a project where I would have been able to go out and and see people and see my friends and hug the people that I've become close to. Um, and then Double Threat happens, and at the time, it felt like we were beating COVID in some ways and that the future was looking bright and there was this travel ban that Donald Trump had imposed that meant that you can't travel into the US without a specific type of visa that was pre-existing and it was looking more and more like i was going to be able to get in just in time maybe right. a week after we started shooting something like that but i couldn't and that was brutal to to not just have to be remote from the set not just have to do that whilst it looks like it's one of the most fun productions that Shane's ever been part of, but also to be trapped in your own home during that way. It's not like you're going out and seeing your friends and talking about this movie that's being made. You're just sitting around dwelling on the fact that you aren't there. And I and I, I said to Shane, it's it's like organising the best party you could ever have with all your dream guests. And then you have to watch it through a soundproof window and nobody even knows you're there. Mm. But Shane was great. He would call me every morning. He could, um, to chat as he was driving in and getting tested about what was going on. he was, it was amazing to, to hear how happy he was and how positive he was one of our, uh, well our co-producer and, and, Transport coordinator Neil Chisholm, who's like the best teamster you could ever have, um, he was sending me stuff all the time. We'd be got close during break even, so I had a couple of people who just kept sending me stuff and, and including me, and that and that was that helped with that. Um, it was tough to hear about how you know debilitating the safety precautions have to be. Like not wearing, not being able to show a smile on your face because you're wearing a mask, not being able to go up and hug people and interact with people. I think that's hard on the kind of sets that Shane and I like to run, which are very kind, very friendly um that you know there's 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 a a almost flat hierarchy that was that was hard as well but in terms of writing the script you know i I just said a lot of stuff outdoors it was a low budget movie anyway we didn't have a lot of money for locations so it lent itself very well to to covid regulations and was that a project you
0: specifically wrote for shane after you finished break even as your next collaboration
1: well, you know, I got really close to Shane and kind of made this pact that, you know, we joke, we call each other Trash Panda because we joke about how we're these, these two filmmaking guys who are willing to, to kind of root through the scraps and do something beautiful with it and, you know, kind of fall around and have fun. And I ended up writing a few scripts for him that we, we tried to get off the ground right. because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And going into COVID lockdown, I wrote a lot of synopsis as well that we that we were putting around town to just try and make things happen. Um, and, and Shane was trying to keep me motivating, motivated, and he had his own ideas. And it was getting toward the end of the year. We knew breakeven was coming out. We wanted to be able to say we were doing something new. We wanted to get something done in 2020. We didn't want COVID to beat us. Shane was not going to let that happen. And he, you know, it's always this funny thing where I've always said, we should make dirt movies, we should make dirt movies, we should make dirt movies because they're my thing, I love them. And he's always said, we can't make dirt movies, we can't make dirt movies because they, because people don't want to buy them. And it was so funny because Shane got to the point where he's like, oh, I just want to make something like a Rodriguez movie. And he sent me this, this kind of, this, this 30 pages of just raw craziness. Mm-hmm. Which is what Shane's brilliant at, where he just puts a brick on the accelerator and holds onto the wheel and just sees where it goes. There's no structure, there's no plan. It goes down crazy roads, but it's quite inspiring and exciting. Where he had this idea of, you know, just this guy meeting this this woman in a in a in a gas station minimart, and her fighting off some bad guys and them going, you know, taking to the road. And this this female character was really interesting because she was kind of really sweet sometimes and then just terrifying at other times. And, you know, I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what to do with it. I had some ideas. And then we had this, this kind of bizarre alignment where mm. Kurt Patito, who's this lovely guy who runs a management company, who's been keen to get into producing, had had a chat with a client of his called Danielle C. Ryan. And, you know, she's this phenomenal um, actor who is like a remarkable stunt performer and has this personal life where she's like riding around on horses and shooting guns and, and arrows and kickboxing, but is doing like Hallmark movies. Right. And he was aware of us. We were aware of them. We'd looked at Danielle for casting in. I think it was break even. And he was kind of like, he approached us and said, well, what can we do? And we were like... Yeah, what can we do? Like, if we all just put our heads together and commit to doing something mm. cheap. Um, and I said, you know what? There's this thing called disassociative personality disorder, which is what the narrator suffers from in Fight Club, where he, mm. you know, where he becomes... I, I mean, they call him Jack, and I think he is called Jack, uh, you know. And and he becomes Tyler Durden. He's the same person. And it was this. Well, that's a real psychological phenomenon that people go through, you know. And it's it's not schizophrenia. It's something different. And it's like this character. She could be suffering with that, where she is two different people. Her brain is compartmentalized like that. And she's an action star on one side, and this sweet, lovely person on the other, depending on how stressed out she is, and how about we just do this as a writer's comedy and a satire Mm. of how ridiculous a lot of female action stars are. So it's kind of a very it's kind of thumbs its nose to a lot of how the way people do female characters, because it ridicules that in a way. And it, and it taps into that. So yeah, they took spoke to us. Um, I wrote a treatment over the weekend with Shane. Yeah. We had a meeting on the Tuesday. We were funded and green lit on the Wednesday because Shane went out and spoke to the financier. And... In less than 10 days, Shane says six. It's all a blur to me. We had a fully fleshed out script um, that everyone was happy with, excited with. I was really happy with. Barely any notes on. Yeah. And, yeah, within three months of that initial meeting I spoke about where Kurt and Danielle reached out to us, um, we... That was three months and we'd wrapped principal photography in that time. So, yeah, all the scheduling, locations, SAG paperwork, COVID regulations, attachments, casting, all of it was done and the principal photography in three months. Wow. That's really impressive. It's really impressive. Oh, yeah. And it's and it's a riot it's looking like an absolute riot of a movie, honestly, with so much action. We didn't get to do the action we wanted to do on break even and all mm. oh, we've compensated so much <laughs> completely the other way. And it's a riot and it's fun. Yeah. And we have got Matthew Lawrence from uh Mrs. Doubtfire and we've got and um, we've got Dawn Olivieri. Um from American Lies, who's just amazing as his female villain. And we've got Kevin Joy, who's a a bit of an unknown at the moment, again, coming out of the the Hallmark Lifetime Mm. world, who's just blown us away.
0: Uh, Looking forward to uh, 2021. What are your three big uh, creative goals you've set yourself for this year?
1: We are going around town right now, kicking doors down, and saying, hey, look, we make female-led action films. You want to call them dirt movies, fine, we'll call them dirt movies. We don't care, we love them. We make these and we, we do them at a budget which is going to make your jaw hit the floor and we turn them around fast. We're excited and we're motivated. So the what we really want to do, what's going to be a big thing for me, is to, is to stick with this very tight team that right. I formed and go off and... Make more of these movies. You know, I would love to make two in 2021 at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would be would be big. And I want to be out there, and it looks like I am going to be able to be out there when we do them as well, and just keep building that up. The that would be two of the goals basically to do two of those movies or to do two of those movies and get out there. The other one, which would be doing through this production company I formed called Rebel Rouser, which is which is all about female-led action content that's quite pulpy. Yeah. The other thing would be to try and get some traction and to try and start getting some of these specs that I've written into production somehow or, or looking towards development because my spec scripts are on this whole other really pulpy, gritty level. They're very early 90s in that respect they're quite artistic they are quite alternative and there are they are these these mostly single location or very minimal location pulpy thrillers um you know that are dialogue heavy which are you know they've got guns they've got you know, standoffs, they've got a lot of witty dialogue, a lot of really interesting characters and in, a lot of character development. I would love to start doing or getting somewhere with that content, which is less obviously commercial. I think they would. there's a huge commercial potential for them, but I've got to prove it. Right. But they're a little bit away from these you know these kind of more campy affairs that we're doing that are just kind of fun they've got like the latest form one we've done is there's no profanity in it because we want to maximize our odds right there's no gore there's no real horrific kind of holy crap that's realistic violence i want to do the the really pulpy stuff i want to do the the early tarantino type stuff so i would love it if something moved there
0: this leads me nicely onto my last question what's your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue
1: um, I think it would be to make this script of mine called for your dreams which just is really bizarre because this one script it was the second script I ever wrote like I say it's these two girls kind of Thelma and Louise mm-hmm. on the run in a muscle car running drugs getting chased by uh, their dealer standoffs pulpy car chases love it this script was the one that got me noticed by Amazon Studios right. in 2013. This script is the one that pulled shade in multiple times. We've, like, tried to make this thing a few times mm. and it's kind of turned into other stories. That I just feel like this thing needs to get made. Um, I think it would have a huge impact on people. I think if it was done with the budget it deserves to get done properly, it would just be... It would be the kind of female-led movie that so many people just want to see that d- d- everyone's just getting wrong on so many levels. It just mm. seems to be going round in circles. It really would be this, this monumental, like, fist, fist slamming down on the table, which is like, here it is. This is what you've been asking for. This is what works. This is what could be huge if you gave it a chance. That would be the one, I think, um, that I would want to, to throw all those, those chips at.
0: And just sort of lastly on that, in terms of making those type of films from like the the Miramax and the the smaller sort of mid-level production companies that are out there, or used to be out there in the 90s, that could throw sort of $10 million at a movie and give it the production value that it needs, where would you see you potentially going to get a film like that made at the
1: moment? That's the hard thing, because the issue you've got right now is we've got indie films, which are going up to $80 million in budget, You've got the decimation of long-tail returns on DVD. I would love like someone like Netflix to get involved mm-hmm. because I feel the market for this are people my age, my generation, Generation X, Generation Y, men and women and everything else that surrounds that, who sitting at home with a nice big widescreen TV and a soundbar who want to go back and have that whole 90s experience again and that kind of a film. I mean, there's a reason why TV series like Breaking Bad do remarkably well because they tap into a degree of grittiness that we left behind. It's the reason why the golden age of television seems to tap into that grittiness of the early 90s or the mid-90s. And I feel it's them that are sitting at home saying, will you stop giving me this this needy, trashy, superficial, perhaps almost too action-heavy, Stuff. and Enough with the superhero movies and enough with... I don't want to go against woke politics or anything like that, but stop giving me stuff that's so sanitised. Like, a lot of people are going on Netflix to watch those older movies Mm. that weren't sanitised, you know, like natural-born killers and stuff like that, you know, stuff that's really, like, in your face and really quite horrific that a lot of people seem to have a real difficulty wanting to mate now because they're worried it might offend someone. Well, our offense, because sometimes the truth is offensive, mm. and you're not necessarily trying to offend people. Sometimes the offense of it is what you're trying to highlight, but you can't keep sanitizing it because somebody somewhere is going to get upset, offended, or fearful it's going to upset or offend other people.
0: So where can people uh, check out your film and TV work and follow you on the social
1: media? The best place to go is cjwally.com. That's, you know, cj walle Um I strongly recommend people check out scriptrevolution.com because of the educational resources that are on there. And if you are a screenwriter trying to break in, well, It's a free opportunity to get exposure and it's growing rapidly and it is getting results for people. Um, If you go to either of those, you're going to find my profile and it's going to have all my social media links on there. Um, And if you check out the blogs, most of my thoughts go onto the blog these days. I'm not a very active person on Twitter. LinkedIn is a good place to catch me. Stage 32 is a good place to catch me. Um, But um, I, I don't really... Do tweets and Facebook, and at the moment, I'm also very proactive on Instagram. I'm I'm doing a couple of posts a day that showcase um, female characters from a whole range of films that are you know from that I've seen in my past that, that go back you know decades, and they're not necessarily leads. It's really showcasing right. a lot of a lot of strong female characters who perhaps weren't necessarily in lead roles, but really deserve to 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 be. to to be reminded of and be inspired by
0: great Um, well that's everything I I had for you Um, thank you so much for giving me um, so much of your time I really appreciate it so there you have it I had a great time chatting with CJ and you can check out CJ's screenplays short films and feature film work on cjwally.com right now just hit the link in the description box below and don't forget to check out more great content on aruba.com from film reviews, video game hot takes and top 10 videos. Why not sign up and become a member and share your passion for all things entertainment on aruba.com today. You can like and subscribe to I was just wondering with Tom Salmon on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. And maybe leave a comment or review if you like. And don't forget to leave a small tip in the Bitcoin jar if you love this episode, as it really does help the podcast can find the address to my Bitcoin wallet in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.